Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome on today's episode. We have Anne Anavin. She is an inventor, creative person, and she created this blush. She lives in Moville. I think it's somewhere in Ireland, but we'll find that out sooner or later. Hello, welcome to the show, Anne. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm good. Thanks, Aaron. And it's in Donegal. Oh. (laughs) Way up top near Malinhead. I think you should move Moville because forget Donegal, just Moville, you know, that's the way it should be. Yeah, exactly. And you don't sound like you're from Donegal. Where are you from? No, I was born in Wimbledon in London. I grew up there. I grew up in the kind of Surrey, London border. I moved over here, I think, when I was 29. Wow, that, that must be cool living in Wilton. You get to see the Wilmington every summer since you're you're pretty close, like... Yeah, it was, you know, it was, but I kind of got fed up. I'd done everything three times. It was time for a move and I don't regret it. I love it over here. We always came here on holiday. So um, my mum was from Mobile. So it was like a second home. We had great freedom here as children compared to at home. Uh, We could just roam free and safe and I loved it. So I have extended family here, plenty of people around me. Was Were both your parents Irish or was one British or Irish? Tell about no, both, both Irish. Mum was from here and dad is from Enniscrone in County Sligo. So we, we used to go there as well for one week. Of our six weeks summer holidays, we'd spend five weeks in Moville and one week in Enniscrone. So we had the uh, best of both worlds. So we could just run free over here. It was uh, completely different to home. Like at home, we'd have to ring somebody up and say, are you in, before we'd walk 20 minutes to their house. <laughs> Whereas here, you know, it was just uh, the opposite. Everybody was at hand and, uh, and yeah, we would come home. We would listen for the church bells and that's how we'd know it was time to go home. Yeah, the days before mobile phones. Yeah. <laughs> so we had to exercise our imagination. 
which I did, which I think has paid me well. What did your parents do at the time? Uh, when, when I grew up, my mum, she was a deputy head teacher and my dad was a manager in um, a company called Sealink, which I don't think they exist anymore. He, was, uh, he worked in central London and mum worked near us as a teacher and then eventually a deputy head. So she used to uh, practice on us when she was studying child psychology. <laughs> she used to <laughs> make us walk up and down. I don't know what the reason, I just remember being maybe seven or eight years old and she'd say walk up and down the room for what reason I don't know I wasn't old enough to ask her then what it was for but she used to use us as case studies I suppose I, I would guess that your imagination would be a continuous exploration as a child and as a teenager as an adult but where did you discover your imagination at, at, at the beginning well I think I got my imagination because of here and we would be out we'd play hotels and somehow we would see beds in rocks and we would be making mud pie, pies from the sand and also when when I was back home in England we were never allowed to watch TV on a Saturday and in those days it was only that the only cartoons were on a, like a Saturday morning but we were allowed to watch them and uh, so we had to be out playing um so on some days i remember oftentimes i would take out like a chair and if it was a bit chilly i would sit with a blanket around me and i would just stare at the sky and i loved it in particular days i loved was when there was a blue sky and clouds because i just used to love watching i think i just got more of the depth of just infinity and, and I would sit there for hours and hours and hours just staring at the sky. I suppose I didn't realise at the time, but it must have been quite like a meditation in a sense. But I think that connected me to, I don't know, a, a higher creative thought level. I don't know. I don't mean higher as in higher than anybody else, but just like higher as in um, transcending, as in transcendental meditation. I think I transcended <laughs> into uh, <laughs> without knowing what I was doing into kind of a meditative, creative state, I think. I think that's how I, that's that's what I put it down to anyway. And then when I was older, um, I don't know, I was always just looking for something. I suppose it's like um, Steve Jobs and co and all the Silicon Valley guys, apparently I hear that they don't send their children to um, schools with big computer suites. They send them to schools deliberately that have nothing like that so that they use their imagination, which is interesting. It is. And you, you kind of brought a memory, you know, in the summertime, which is now you'd be sitting on the grass, staring up into the sky and, and imagining what the clouds would look like. I think that's, yeah. that's as a child, you, you enjoy that, but you, time passes by when you're looking at the clouds. Yeah, it does. I, I spent hours doing that. I was quite happy just on my own staring into the sky. <laughs> Well, that's my memory. Perhaps it wasn't as long, but it did say I, I could sit there quite happily without doing anything else. Then I'm sure I got bored and went riding my bike and did all the other usual things. But we had to do gardening. We had a vegetable patch. So my dad taught us. I think I chose strawberries. So I, that, that was my patch. I was in charge of the strawberries. But because um, he grew up in, as I say, in a scrone, they had their own vegetables and that grown up. So he kind of passed that on to us. And my dad made me quite practical because I was the one, there were three of us. My brother's older, I'm the middle child, typical middle child. And then my sister's younger than me. But I was kind of the one that always helped him if there was something to do in the house. So I can wallpaper, I can paint, I can change a lock, I can grow strawberries. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm sure I can grow other things, but um, you know, we, we all had our tasks, and uh, it, my children have a very different life. My childhood was very, um, it was good, it was great, but it was very, I wouldn't say regimented, but very structured and organized. Therefore, my children are the exact opposite. I just let them grow up like weeds <laughs> and wildlings. In fact, my nephew said he, he has memories when he used to come and visit us from, from London. He, he called my three girls, um, he said, yeah, they were like wildlings, you know, the Game of Thrones reference. And I suppose they were. <laughs> they grew up very free. There's a, there was a river in front of the house. They would just be down in the river or running around. In the winter, uh, they would have like welly boots on out stamping in puddles. Yeah, they had a very, very free, much to the, uh, well, my, my mother-in-law wasn't too impressed <laughs> at the time. Um, but I suppose I was always a free spirit because I think I was so constrained in a good way. It was just, you know, regulated. I could just break free and I didn't impose any rules. There was no bedtime. Like I had to be in bed at half past seven every single night. I remember looking out the window. We had a student coming. You know how you have French or Spanish students stay? Well, we had a Moroccan girl stay. And I think I was probably about six or so, I'm guessing. And I was sleeping, I had I was put to bed when my mum went down to, to meet the, the student. And I remember looking out the window and it was obviously summer, because I think they come in the summer anyway, don't they? And uh, and I, what I could do, I could hear all these kids outside the street playing and they were on their bikes and it was bright daylight and the curtains were drawn, but it was pouring in. And I was reading at the time Robin Hood and I just, to this day, I hate anything to do with Robin Hood because it just reminds me of being so, I don't know, constricted. But I didn't know it at the time. I just wanted more freedom. And I mean, I didn't have any angst about it, but I just was kind of wishing, oh, look, at, I wish I was out there. So I think that's why I'm the opposite and let my girls roam free and they could fall asleep. They would fall asleep and I would carry them up and put them to bed. Very bad mum, some would say. <laughs> but we all have our reasons for doing things. I just let them be free. Wildlings. <laughs> Wildlings of Donegal. <laughs> but, you know, they turned out okay. They turned out good, yeah. I think you, I think it's awful to restrict. I try and say yes more than I try and say no. Obviously, I just don't say yes to everything. But, um, yeah, I, I think, well, okay, why not? If it can be done, why not? So I'd say yes. And I had to teach myself that because I think, you know, when you're, like I was a mum, I had three young daughters. I have a son now as well. But at that time, I just had the three girls and they were like three little ducklings. And, you know, it's hard. And we, I had a busy life as well. And uh, they would be saying, can we do this? Can we do that? And I heard myself saying, oh, no, 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 because of time constraints. And I, and then I think I read somewhere, some self-help book or something about how we do, we do say no. When I became aware of it and conscious of it, I, I heard myself saying no so many times, like, mommy, can we go to the swing park? Oh, not now. No, maybe later. And I thought, why? Why? So I, when I became aware of it, I changed it. And I think I've kind of pretty much kept that as part of my, my life. If I can say yes, I'll say yes to things because why not? Yeah. Why, why not? You know, yeah. <laughs> I, I get the feeling that 
your imagine imaginary and imagination comes from reading probably will come from reading books and you read a book you kind of disappear into the book but we're in growing up and, and now are you an avid reader do you, do you read a lot yeah i do and i did read a lot growing up an awful lot um except robin hood <laughs> i don't know if i ever finished it i have no i probably did um yeah i read a lot and i love to get lost in a book but i think they're rare for me they're rare nowadays i mostly read biographies autobiographies because i'm interested in people um and um kind of self-improvement books that's what I, at the moment i'm reading the science of getting rich by wallace d wattles again i've read it before but i'm reading it again um, I, I read a bit of that every day. I, I often used to have a book upstairs and a book downstairs. I used to always read more than one book. I'd have a book for bed, and that was always the one that kept me, that took me the longest to read because I read half a page and it's like a sleeping tablet for me. Not because it's boring, but <laughs> so that those books that I read in bed, they would always be really long, take me a long time to get through. And then I'd have other books, say, downstairs, you know, ones that I'd pick up and just read a chapter, like a different type of book, like an inventing book or something, which I have as well by my side. Uh, so, yeah, I always had at least two on the go. Do you ever get confused at having two books at the same time? Because sometimes the story may merge between the two books. No, I seem to be. I must be able to compartmentalise. <laughs> no, so far, so good, Aaron. Not not yet. And, and all the books you read so far, which would be your favourite? Oh, that's a good question. Oh, I think, um, oh, I love Louise Hay, um, her book, How to Heal Your Life. That was a big changer for me, a, a, a life changer. Um, yeah, that, that probably that and The Science of Getting Rich, I love too. But yeah, Louise Hay was a, a life changer. That just opened up a whole new world to me. Why was that? I think it just made me aware that there was much more without us, outside of us, and that it just made me look at life in a different way and realise that um, that we can have more if we if we look within. I suppose it made me look within, and I think most of our answers are within us that we know. I definitely think that if we if we're still long enough and look within. I think we have a lot of the answers, but we just live in such a busy world that we, I think we look for the answers everywhere else. I think though you have to read, you do have to um, read stuff, I suppose, and um, come to a conclusion. And then I think you kind of know the answers are within you. So definitely Louise Hay, favourite book. When you when you started reading that, were you at a point in your life where you needed to look within? Yes, very much. Yeah, it was hectic. I had three young children. It was probably about 1997 or thereabouts. And yeah, I discovered it. And we, and it was in the summer. I was at the beach with the girls and I was watching them. But I just couldn't get... I mean, I had to keep reading it and reading it and then keep glancing up to check they were okay. And I just couldn't, I just couldn't get enough of it. Yeah, it was... Um, yeah, it made me realise that... I think the things I was doing weren't really what I wanted to be doing and I wanted to do more for myself. I think I was doing an awful lot for like my husband's business, you know, and which I didn't mind because it was our business, but it was his it was his forte, it wasn't mine. 
and he's a chartered town planner and and we had we had a bed and breakfast at first and we had a hostel and it was just chaotic and busy all the time and I could never leave work I couldn't just go home so it was just busy 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 and then three young children and then trying to keep them quiet sometimes when we had B&B guests and I hated that so then I'd let them run and scream around the garden like joyfully scream you know <laughs> when when they could because I well I would I mean you have to be respectful and and I'd say oh I have to keep quiet and try and turn it into a game but you know I found it very constraining on me personally um and then yeah so it was it was there were his things that he was interested in and and joint income um and joint 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 together but it wasn't really my passion so i think it just gave me the freedom to um think yeah you know i'm going to pursue my own things which i did and what do you go and pursue well i was i, I always um loved inventing um i think from the age of about mm, i don't know 19 or so i was wanted to invent something and um i went to new york and i stayed with my aunt and at the time she was nursing this mrs belinsky and she and her husband um jack they were immigrants to new york as many were including my grandparents um in the early 1900s and so she was a private nurse for Mrs Linsky she had survived her husband and she told me my aunt called Nancy she said uh, go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York and have a look there's a whole Linsky wing which Bell Linsky she loved art and so she donated so much art um i forget it was millions millions of dollars of art that they had to build a whole wing to house it and i was there and i thought wow and and what he did jack when he was the immigrant uh or just arrived newly arrived to new york he worked in um a stationery warehouse and some of his i suppose he was stacking stuff up and moving along and loading up trucks to take to various establishments and um and he came across the stapler and and he kind of apparently this is how I was told he was kind of looking at it and thought it's a bit clunky it's a bit chunky and he thought it was an interesting concept and so he he innovated it he didn't invent it he innovated it and i thought oh that caught my attention i didn't really know about something being innovated i just thought things were invented and um and he made i mean i'm sure it wasn't just from the stapler i'm sure he made good i'm sure he made investments and bought property in that but generally it was from the starting point was the stapler just the, the humble stapler and uh, and it just fascinated me that they had this immense wealth from that and i was thinking oh i could probably do that <laughs> and i went back to my office and i sat there and i was thinking oh what could i invent what could i invent and i was just trying so hard too hard i might add and i was thinking it has to be something simple because i'm no rocket scientist and like the paper clip fascinated me you know i think that's so clever and cat's eyes the guy who invented cat's eyes and they they self clean when a car goes over them the lip comes over and cleans them and i think that's just genius 
So it was always kind of those things that interested me, um, useful things, I suppose. And I remember sitting in my office thinking, ah, oh, and just looking at filing cabinets and thinking, what can I do, what can I do? Anyway, nothing came. And then later on, when I'd had my first child, Cressida, um, wow, I, it was a, I was thinking, oh, I, I, I need something for this. And oh, I need, there's nothing for that. And uh, and that was the start of it. And it's like the floodgates open. So having my first child seemed to switch on something that was previously not switched on. I amazed how the invention, the invention of a stapler and a stapler and paper clip is so, so simple. Mm. And and yet it kind of inspired you to go and invent something in inside you to be presented outside. When did that urge or when did that creativity kind of bounce around to to create something like the snot the snot lot? Well, that was born out of necessity, as are many things, and um, it was actually because I don't think my kids are sorry any more gross than anybody else, but they would have the snail trails on their sleeves. And it was a friend of mine, he was American and they lived next door to us and uh, we were chatting one day and he, they didn't have kids, the next door neighbours, and they were always kind of fascinated by my girls. And um, <laughs> and I think I, they probably were wiping their nose on their sleeve. <laughs> and he probably said something like, oh my God, that's gross, <laughs> not having kids. And, uh, and then I think I just came up with the idea, like I, if I had a little gadget, they could wipe it on there but then the idea is that they kind of learn then to use it um they learn to use it like putting the tissues in and then extracting the tissues using the tissue and throwing the tissue away so it's kind of like a little i mean for want of a better description a little tissue mini tissue box on your arm so it was kind of just born out of uh snail trails and that's why there's a little snail on it <laughs> to represent the, the trails that I was trying to eliminate. When you say snail trails, what does that mean? Uh, it means I'm going to be gross. The line of SNOT when they wipe their nose on their sleeve. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which look like snail trails. Oh, I get you now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they'd have these little shiny lines on their sleeves <laughs> that looked like a snail had been crawling up them. <laughs> So it was just born out of, and I think fun as well, you know, it was, it's fun. I think it's like Captain Underpants. Kids just love a bit of naughtiness and like to say underpants and snot. And well, I don't know, my kids did. And I know there's an element. I'm sure there are some people that would be not too keen on it. But, you know, it's fun. And I think there's, there's room for fun in life. Certainly in my life anyway. I think it would be boring otherwise I, I think it would you know like yeah. life is an adventure if it's boring what's the point exactly yeah so it's just a bit of fun and that was one and but you see I'm a bit like I'm not as clever as Leonardo da Vinci but there is something called I think the da Vinci um syndrome or something like that uh where he 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 was a genius I'm not like him but he was a genius and apparently he led a very um, frustrated life because he would start all these drawings and he had all these ideas, like he had the first drawings of a helicopter and and he'd studied the anatomy of man and, you know, that figure of the man. And um, But then he would get bored and he'd move on to something and it, apparently he led a very frustrated life because he was always starting something and not finishing the previous thing. 
So I'm a bit like that. And I moved around a lot. And then I'd have to start. Yeah, I've moved around a bit like yourself, Aaron. Um, and I would kind of get a little pocket of people around me. And then I'd move and I'd lose that pocket of people and, and the local links. But I thought at the same time as well, I never forced anything in my life. I, every time I fought, tried to force something, it definitely has not worked. So I'm very much a believer in, I think, things come to you at the right time. I kind of flow and go with the flow. I definitely don't force anything in my life. I don't force anybody. I don't force anything. I think it's, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. But I mean, I will take action and do things. I don't just sit there and expect things to, to flow upstream to me. But um, yeah, I never force anything. So I kind of, and, and I thought, well, I'm not going to miss out on having an adventure going and living somewhere else or trying a different destination or location. And um, so I never said no to moving, but it did kind of hamper things. And then I'd have another idea and then I'd start on that. And I'd have to start with a whole new bunch of people. But mm, that's just how my life was or is. <laughs> and I'd move tomorrow in a heartbeat too. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. My, my heart would, but my head says no, wait, wait a bit longer. But I would, I mean, I love it here, but I would, um, the, the reason I liked uh, another place where I think is my, oh, I don't know, my spiritual home where I go for inspiration is Glen Bay Castle and Glen Bay National Park, which is also in Donegal. And there, the reason I loved it, it's because it is beautiful. And the, one of the guys, I think it was Metal Henny. And his grandfather had invented the um, the gas meter back in the day, back way back, probably, I don't know, the 1920s or something, maybe before, I don't know, uh, where well, you know, put the money in. And he was American. I think they were Philadelphian. And um, anyway, he invented the gas meter. And every time I went there, because it's beautiful, if ever I had visitors or have, um, I would take them to Glen Bay and I would sit and listen to the, I could nearly give the tour guide the talk. Because I was waiting, I, I didn't matter, I loved it. And I'd wait for this bit that they would say, and his grandfather or great-grandfather, um, Henry McElhenney, um, and that's how come he had this fabulous lifestyle, Henry, because um, his grandfather invented this. So Henry's lifestyle was he bought the, the castle and did it up, and he would have guests there. I think Grace Kelly was a guest, many guests. And, um, and it's just like this little gem in the middle of, probably bogland, you know, and then there's this this amazing, beautiful gardens and an orangery and uh, everything. And it's just like an oasis, really. And in fact, my dad couldn't believe it. When I took him there, he said, oh, no, why are we going to go there? And I said, no, just wait there, because he loves gardening and gardens and flowers and Chelsea flower shows and that stuff. So, um, and he, he just could not believe it because we were driving there and it, it's through this kind of barren, very barren landscape. And then, as I say, suddenly, the only way I can describe it is like an oasis in a desert. And he was just amazed. But anyway, the point is, um, if you do the tour guide, they tell you at one point that um, he used to do, he used to, Henry used to have this, this lifestyle that they would be in Philadelphia for the season. And I haven't got this quite right but it's kind of the, the bones of it. They would be in the Philadelphia and then they would travel to, um, I think each year they'd go somewhere different, like it might be Paris or Rome or some place 
in, in Europe. And then they would go maybe to London. And then in August, they would spend the month of August in Glen Bay. Then they would go on to, I think it was um, New Zealand. They had some uh, connection to New Zealand. And then they would go on to some other place, which I can't think of right now. And then back to Philadelphia. And I thought, oh, I want that lifestyle. I want that. That roaming lifestyle where I'm not, I do get kind of bogged down in one place. But I, I yeah, so I, I love Ireland. I think it'll always be my base, but I, I do want to have that lifestyle. So it always inspired me when I went there and I just wait for that part of the tour guide talk. And and I think that's what I want. I want that that lifestyle. And, and I thought that's all from him inventing the gas meter. So I think that's why I go there. I love it. I mean, it's just so beautiful and I do get, inspired there very much so and just I suppose possibilities I get the feeling that inspires you because as an inventor to an inventor it's like you're awing a shiz and it's inspiring you to to invent at the same time I think invent something and invent the lifestyle that goes with it (laughs) and why not yeah I think you mentioned about Leonardo da Vinci's, you know, syndrome of where I wonder, do you kind of hit hit that as well? Or you get a great idea, you invent something and then you forget and go on, move on to the next thing, or do you have a process of of how you go about inventing something? No, I have no process. A bit like the rest of my life, <laughs> just um, no. I, and I do. Then I come up with another idea, and then I'll go down that line. And I'd actually. The snot blot had been put to rest because the snot blot turned into the mini pocket and because there was a lady in America who decided that snot blot perhaps wasn't really too, it wasn't right for middle America, uh, it was maybe too niche and um, so it got changed into the mini pocket. And so, but it was only when, and not to capitalize on on um, bad times, but somebody said to me, oh, your snot block would be perfect in these times of um, PPE, you know, why not resurrect it? So I kind of am. But before that, I, I mean, I have 27 ideas um, and I have them written down, but I can't. <laughs> I have them written down here. And yeah, there's 27, so... And then, you know, I go off and I start doing, I, then I looked into licensing because I thought I don't want to manufacture. It's too much money. It's too much time. It's too much headache. So um, I looked into licensing. So I did a course with Stephen Key. He's a fabulous American and he has this licensing down to a fine art. But, you know, I started doing that course. I'm back doing that again now. I'm back reading the book. Um, has a license it and it's in 10 steps and it's so simple and, and I'm connected to him on LinkedIn and you know at least I don't know every few days you see congratulations to so and so for licensing their product and you see I'm no good at doing the um, the hard work having to I like it but to me it's not creative but I know I have to do the, the work so I'm, read, I'm rereading that book and I'm going to go back down the licensing route and um yeah, I mean, I have a buggy, the snot blot. I have something to do with glasses, a chair for the elderly, an attachment for a hoover, um, a headband idea for girls' headbands, uh, a spider catcher, um, an app, a mask. Before COVID, I had this mask. A little pen parker place. Um, something to do with kitchen stools. Wellington boots, um, kids' tags, 
um, a car key attachment, and uh, yeah, some other things. <laughs> An aid to assist with breastfeeding, which I think I referred to, well, I did refer to in a, in a presentation I did on Pat's Outstanding Network, where I thought this was fantastic. That was my first one. It was a clip to aid breastfeeding. And, and I phoned up, I think, the National Breastfeeding Association or something. And, and this was my very first foray into the, the world of uh, a mean world, I might say, sometimes. And, and I'm so enthusiastic. And I phoned up and said, oh, I've had this great idea. What do you think? And I don't know who I had, but she was quite matronly in her answer. And her answer to me was, breastfeeding is the most natural thing in the world. And it certainly does not require any assistance goodbye and so I kind of retreated and licked my wounds whereas now I just think well that's okay it's not for you you know and I would trudge on so um yeah that kind of put me off for a bit and but anyway I came back as I do but uh yeah that was my first <laughs> foray into the world and I think, you know, I just, I didn't know. You don't know when you start out, do you? No, nobody knows anything. If they do, if it's new to them, you learn. You, you do learn. You do learn indeed. I, so, so the breastfeeding was your first invention, right? Yeah, but I didn't take it anywhere. And then I let that just drop off. And then I came up with, I think probably the next one was a snot blot. And then there was a, a buggy, a, a kind of unique buggy, children's stroller. Um, that came out of need, <laughs> necessity. And yeah, just uh, most of the things are like household, most of my yeah, household items that I kind of just need in the house. And I think, oh, that would be handy. Yeah, household or kids, mainly. <laughs> Very practical, I think. Well, whoever came up with the saying, necessity is the mother of invention, was very, very true. It was very accurate because I think never was a truer saying said. To totally. Um, I I heard a, s a story about you bought a B and B and you painted it and tell us about how that came came about. Oh well, no, that was my. I moved over here and it was my husband's ancestral grandparents. They they'd bought the house and and it was a lovely house and he was doing B and B. So I moved over and together we kind of had this idea that it would be good to do, but it was hard work and. Uh, yeah, so then we there were old outbuildings, and I think what you're referring to is um, we had old outbuildings, and then we we um, we built a hostel from the old outbuildings. I think there were old stables and outhouses, anyway. And um, and I think I was yeah I was pregnant with my second child three weeks before she was due to be born. I was down on my hands and knees at three o'clock in the morning, um, staining the floor because the Fulcher Island lady was coming the next day. And uh, so maybe that's it. That was the painting reference. But I often used to stay up all night to I'd get the children to bed because I couldn't do much with children uh, around. They were little and I didn't really have help as such. If I did, I'd make the most of that day. Um, but I remember I stayed up one night. The girls were in bed and, um, and I decorated the whole kitchen and I just stayed up. I thought, I'm going to finish it tonight. So I didn't go to bed that night and I stayed up the next day because I didn't have the luxury of being able to sleep with three little ones. But that never really bothered me. And it never bothered me being pregnant. It never stopped me doing anything. Like I was lucky in that respect. So, in fact, I found it more uh, constricting after they were born because I'd have to 
feed them every four hours, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, I had to stop. So, I mean, I loved having them, but it was easier being pregnant. <laughs> I didn't stop me doing anything. And it was, yeah, it was kind of more difficult, but more joyous, obviously, having the children. But, yeah, much... Um, so I would have to quite often do things at night and stay up the whole night to do things. But that doesn't really... I still do that now. That I think I was up to five o'clock doing my uh, prep for my talk on Pat's Outstanding Network. But I didn't mind it because I loved it. and It was making me laugh and I was enjoying it. So I don't, it's not a chore for me. But see, I never used to eat that much. I used to forget to eat. And sometimes I still forget to eat unless I smell food. Like yesterday, I had such a busy day, I was telling you. That I think I had breakfast, one size toast, and then I was, I had to then had visitors outside, socially distancing, and it was my daughter, and uh, and then they stayed, and then somebody else called to the door to get something, and then there was phone calls, and I had to go out somewhere, and then I realised when I was out walking in the forest, actually brainstorming with my friend at a social, socially required distance. Um, brainstorming about the land. So I, I never kind of stop. I'm writing a story at the moment. I'm not writing a book. I'm just writing a story. Um, and it's about this fantasy land. I've never done anything like it before, but I always had it in my head. And I probably had it in my head for about five years. And I started again. I started, then stopped, start, stop, do something else. But I'm kind of at it now, hammer and tongs. And uh, so when we were out walking in the forest, we were having great fun see I think you know why not enjoy the journey um, enjoy the process and we had great fun and we were laughing at ourselves and our fun ideas and um, so yeah I forget what you asked me but <laughs> always creating yeah always do but I enjoy it I enjoy it you have something in your I know you stopped starting but have something in your head for five years how like do you have a filing camera do you process it but like the, how Tell us about, like, how are you able to keep something that in your head for that period of time where you write and st- start and stop? But there there must be some way how you can keep going <laughs> of it to, to continue later on. I know. I don't know. It's just there, I suppose. Um, and I just kept thinking, oh, I must write that. I must put that down on paper. And I'd have another idea. And I'd think, well, I must, I must remember to write that. And um, no, but it was. It was there for five years, I think. Um, I can't remember how it came to me. I think I was actually in Russia at the time and we had to, if you stay there longer than seven days, you have to register um, at a police station just, and we were there and it, we were there the whole day. We were just sitting in this corridor and I think it was our second last day to be there. So the whole day was wasted and Dimitri was probably about, I don't know, what's he now? 15. So I suppose 10. And, um, and we were sitting in this corridor and I was trying to um, keep him kind of amused. So I said, well, let's write, let's think of a story. And um, But I think I always had it. I think I had it from, from young. I just didn't know I had it. I think it was there. The seeds of it were there. But yeah, five years ago, I began to kind of process it. And that's kind of how it started. And then probably a few months later, I thought, oh, I must put that down. But you see, then I move and then I'm doing something else. So it, I, it just got put on the back burner, but it was always there. But then it came to the point where it was almost like it has to come out. I have to get this out. <laughs> and I reached that point of bubbling over. So I started then. And I, before, when I started actually, oh, I don't know, putting it down on paper, I did a lot of research and um, 
then I started putting it down on paper, um, I don't know, maybe three years ago. And then I stopped because I probably started doing something else or I had some some event happen in my life. And um, and then I went back to it. And then I was always, it would always put, pull me back. So I returned to it and I thought, okay, I'm going to really stick with it this time. And, and I was going up to a lovely local hotel every day for an hour and sitting down, getting a cup of herbal tea and, and doing a bit. And sometimes I'd re- reread the last bit that I'd written and, uh, and I think, oh, did I write that? You know, I wouldn't even remember what I'd written. I'd just go into this kind of zone and, um, and I just write what, what comes out. But it's the same when I wrote my, um, I think I there's 15 little snot blot stories in here. <laughs> and, uh, and I would just sit down, Dimitri was young, he was a baby, and, and, I, and I would walk him around for 15 minutes and then he'd fall asleep and I'd dash home then. And then I would just sit down at the computer and I would just write a story. But I didn't know what I was going to write. I didn't know what was going to come out. I didn't know which character it was going to be. But it would just come to me and I would just and, and just write it. And I wouldn't think. I would just type it. And I'd think, okay, then that happened and that happened that happened. And they're just little short stories, like Mr. Men stories. But, um, yeah, that's kind of, I'm just, I can't be regimented or organised. But I would love that hour and a half I'd have and I'd sit down and, and write a story and I always I think the best time for me is at night because when, when I'd get all the children to bed I think oh this is my magic hour two hours for me kind of from I better not say in case there's other parents that will be judging me <laughs> but let's just say well I mean I'd get them to bed and then I'd kind of do the prep for the next day and then it might be yeah you know and I'd tidy up and clear up so I could sit down with a clear head and it might be from midnight till two or half two or three that I would really that was my magic time that was just for me because all the rest of the day it was you know school lunches shopping all that kind of stuff um homework and so that was my there were my bewitching hours at night and that's where yeah I could just be me with no interruptions I loved it that was my special special time and space and it probably still is I'm probably most active at that time definitely <laughs> that's when nobody else nobody can interrupt me <laughs> I was just gonna say it's probably it's quiet but yes I think there's something nice about writing it in the nighttime where it's it's quiet there's no interruptions but yes it just unlocks the head and you flow it's it's fascinating how, how at that time it's it's quiet yeah like it's my bewitching hour <laughs> and i think it was i was one of 12 people chosen from quite a few and and that's when i sat down and i saw this i don't know how i saw it again i think it just you know things that, that are meant for you won't pass you by and i saw this thing come up and and she was always my heroine just because of what she created and what she built and how she built it and her ethics and her just goodness and um so and I just really admired her and and uh so I I saw this um entrance for a competition or to meet her for a one-hour mentoring session in the British Library in London. And I was living here at the time um, in a different town, another move. <laughs> and uh, so I, and that was, I think I discovered it and I was thinking, oh, I can't wait till it's my time. And so I did the, uh, I typed out my um, application and I think the deadline was, oh no, did I? 
post that? Oh yeah, no, that's right. That had to be emailed. And um, and I got in anyway, probably the next day was the deadline. And uh, I got that off. And uh, and again, I just kind of whacked it out. And um, yeah, I was getting mixed up that I posted it. But no, later that night, I went down and I posted through our EHIC application forms and I put them through the letterbox because again, I could just get stuff. That was about three o'clock in the morning that I drove down and and I think I love being around when there's nobody else around. I remember I still can clear and clearly remember driving down the street and going to wherever the place was and to you know those European health insurance cards. I don't know if they're still around anymore, but it was posted in our applications for that through some I don't know letterbox that was the relevant place. And yeah, I remember that night very well. And then I heard a couple of weeks later that I was chosen. And so I made the trip over and I met Anita and she looked at the snot blot. She was more interested in the stories. She loved the snot blot, but she loved the written word. And she was very much into, at that time, um, empowering women because there was, uh, or young girls, because I took Lauren with me, my youngest daughter, and she was maybe eight or nine at the time. And um, and she said, oh, bring her in. And she was kind of turning her around. Let me see you, let me see you. Because Anita built, not built, she created the Ruby doll as opposed to the Barbie doll, where the Ruby doll was just more, um, more normal and more kind of real. Because she didn't, she believed, I think it was, yeah, that was, but it would have been, you know, they'd been all that, like really super skinny models and, and everything, emaciated. So she was very much against that. And uh, she was a force to be reckoned with. She was dynamite. Um, so, yeah, I, I met my hero, really. And uh, she was quite scary. She was <laughs> very focused. And she was really put 100% in it. And she was sitting, thinking, right, let me look at this. And, you know, you could see her mind working, thinking what would be the best avenue for this. And... And she said, I love them, you know, the, the words you think. I said, I think the stories would be very empowering to children because they do have um, a kind of little moral to them, to each story. And they're feel-good factor ones and just little happy stories, really. And how they're not, yeah, and how to be safe. And, like, I don't know, there's uh, Scribbling Snot Block. That was kind of based on Lauren because she used to, my youngest daughter, she used to draw, she used to draw, draw these, I called them busy pictures because there was so much in them. And I've actually got their work hanging up downstairs. I framed it because I love their artwork and that hangs on my walls. And um, so she used to do these busy pictures because there was just so much going on in them. I thought they were fantastic. And um, I forgot why I was saying this. I always do that about, oh yeah, the stories, that's right. So one of the stories, and then at this time, I was getting a divorce from my husband. And and it was just a little story about how this particular scribbling snot blot um, had a little space that she used to go to to draw pictures when things got too much for her. And, and just that, and the story line is like whatever's happening in your parents life you know you're not responsible for it and it's like just a little uplifting story for say a child going through a divorce or separation um and then there's a screaming snot blot i think that's about crossing the road safely and then there's a solar snot blot who's based on my friends it's just about um losing something and finding it and yeah i forget there's 15 i haven't read them in a while (laughs) And I did send them off, if you were going to ask that, I sent them off to three publishers and they 
politely declined them as is their right and it wasn't for them and I kind of just gave up and I didn't realize at the time I went on to do something else you see this is the Leonardo bit then I thought oh, it doesn't matter and I started going down another avenue of creating something else and this was gung-ho at this and then I learned later I mean this was pre um JK Rowling but then you know as her, her stuff came out um and then I learned I read that she'd I think submitted to 12 publishers and was refused and she was accepted on the 13th so I was like oh okay <laughs> that's interesting I just gave up on the third but I didn't just give up and I gave up and or that you know put it to rest and started on on something else so da Vinci again yeah <laughs> <laughs> in, in being a, a, busy, a busy mom and a busy creative person and an adventurer, how, how are you able to, to juggle them all at the same time? I multitask and I, um, I'm kind of very organized and um, I have to clean. I'm, my kids say I'm a bit OCD, minorly about cleaning, but I can think when I'm doing floors, I'm thinking, I, I plan out my day and I think, right, I'll do that and then I'll do this. And even on a journey, say if I, pre-COVID days, I'd go into Derry and I'd have to go um, to the post office and I had to go pick something else and then I'd have to drop this off and go there and something else. I'd have it all rooted out so I, was, I wasn't going back and forth. So I would kind of do it on a circuit and I'd have it... Um, in my head, yeah, I think, okay, I'll go there first. And this was all planned while I'd be cleaning. <laughs> so, and, and I can think when I'm cleaning. And I mean, I just do the floors and make sure everything's tidy and just you know, generally keep it tidy. Because I don't know, my house doesn't really get that messed up, but because um, I like it organized. And, um, but I'm not rigid, you know, because that would be too much like my childhood. <laughs> but for me, for me personally, yeah, that, that's how I get stuff done because... Yeah, I suppose I multitask. And I won't go to bed until something I need to do is done. If it needs to be done, I won't go. And it doesn't bother me either. I, I, you know, stay up just because it has to be done. You you met your hero and you got to spend time with her and, and, and she got to hear, she, you got to figure out, well, you're the snoplot. But was that kind of exciting to, to meet that person that you had your, as your hero? Yeah. I mean, it was, it really was. And uh, yeah, it was um, amazing. And I was very privileged to, I felt honored to have met her because she was just such a great force in life. And I mean, just all her achievements and her accomplishments. And I think, you know, it's her ethics that appealed to me the most and how she built it from nothing. And she just kind of got stuff done. But yeah, it was. But then I, I afterwards, I met a lady um, when I was living in Southampton. That's another move. Um, I met this lady and she had worked with Anita. And she said, oh, she was dynamite. She said, if she'd go somewhere, like say, she went to a college to visit a college because she was I'm giving with her time as well. Um, and she'd say, oh, OK, I need photocopies of this. And she said, OK, where's the photocopy? And she'd just run up three flights of stairs and do it herself rather than wait for somebody. She just had to have everything done. So I thought, yeah, I can kind of the hour that I had the privilege of meeting her. I could imagine that. And she said she was just a fireball. She wouldn't wait for something. She'd have it done. Don't know. I need to do it now. And 
yeah. So yes, in a, in, in a short word, it was she was everything that I want, but kind of scary because she was just so a force to be reckoned with. She was just she's just this ball of energy. When I say scary, she was nice, but um, like whoa. <laughs> in that hour, was there something that you learned from that person? Oh, I think yeah, a lot. In the hour, in that hour, did you say? Yes. Yeah, I mean, just how focused she was and that she just put 100% of herself into that and and just how giving she was of her time. That um, And she liked to see um, progress. She liked to see innovation. Um, I don't know what the other 11 people, who or what, who they were or what their idea was. Um, but, you know, I got the impression that, yeah, she liked to encourage people to, to create and, and to start a business and, and do something. You know, that, yeah, that's what I probably learned from her in that hour. But I learned a lot more because I read her autobiography, of course. That was just, that, well, that, that's a close, autobiography-wise, that would be my best autobiography, hers and Richard Branson, which I'm also reading. That's the third book I'm reading at the moment. That's kind of on the, on the windowsill on the landing that I'll pick up and read a chapter here and there. So, yeah, I've got three books on the go. I forgot about that. <laughs> I, I think... I think that you're you're going to figure out the the invent the invention and the inventor are together. So whatever you're experiencing is whatever is coming to reality to, to be invented. Yeah. Well, my my favorite film is Joy. It's about Joy Manjano, who I'd never heard of before the Joy film came out, which had um, Robert De Niro and I think Jennifer Lawrence played Joy. And that's my favourite film. I mean, that just uplifts me um, because it, her journey, I just saw so much of my struggle in her early struggle and um, and just how she just kept going against everything. And it's just a good, it's a good ending and she seems to be a pretty kind of good individual. So my goal would be to, the joy, to be the Joy Manjano of Ireland. Similar, not her. I don't want to be her, but what she's achieved, I would like to be that person of Ireland. So, to put it short, to join Manjano of Ireland. <laughs> and it's a good film. It's a really good film. What inspires you to do what you do? Oh, I think you know. I think it's just it's in you. It's like if you're a dancer, you dance. If you're a painter, you paint. If you're a singer, you sing. And I wish I could sing. That's something I really wish. If I could have a wish to have um, something, a gift, it would be to sing. Um, but what was the question? What inspires you to do what you do? Oh, yeah. So I think it's just in me. That Yeah, I've thought about that often. It's just in me. But something outside that would inspire me is, um, yeah, places like Glen Bay. I think, okay, come on, you want that lifestyle. <laughs> and I think Joy about her is I think just to have the achievement of having so many products and I have them all there you know on paper and some are um, in process and um, like the, the mini pocket and there's an egg peeler that I invested in um, that's been a bit slow but I think it's on the start again um, so there are a few of my products, but now I'm going to go back to licensing, like I say, and I've got so many. I think I'm just going to whack them out. And and I've done a course with Eamon, well, Pat's brilliant. I mean, I did Pat's course, and uh, he's a big inspiration. Um, but I did Eamon. 
I'm doing Eamon's course, The Power of the Individual. And he has opened up, I was laughing with him and I said, you have just opened up a whole new world for me. And this was only like probably seven, 10 or 11 days ago. And, um, and that's just made me much more disciplined. So I'm going to go, I'm just going to, and, and it's, it's inspired me, Eamon's course, to just go out. I think before I was kind of that one, it's like my baby. And what if somebody doesn't like it? Someone says your baby's not nice or your drawing's not nice. And, and I think I was, I, I'm, I'm kind of a sensitive person. And I thought, you know what? Put your big girl pants on. If they say no, they say no. Move on to the next one, you know, and just put it out there because nobody's going to find them if I just sit on them and and don't put them out there. I totally agree. As as an individual, what is your power? Oh, as an individual, what's my power? Um, I think I could answer different answers depending on what kind of category. Um, or niche but my power would be I think that I can connect with people and I like to connect with people and and I like to listen to people and I think people need to be heard and and in fact I had a lovely um, message from a friend of my youngest daughter Lauren he stayed with us he came back from Australia and he was homeless. He couldn't go home because both his mom and dad have separate houses, but they were both kind of high risk for COVID. So he couldn't go there. And he was meant to be staying in a kind of Airbnb place, but then he couldn't stay there. So he landed and he had nowhere to go. So we took him in. And I thought, ah, you know, <laughs> if we catch it, we catch it. I would be, I did ask Dimitri, because obviously he said, yeah, he's okay with it. And I, I never try and be too scared of things. And I thought, I'm not going to let it scare me. That that could be my child that needs somewhere to stay. So we took him in. And he wrote some beautiful words. Um, and he said that he thought my strong points were that I hear people, that I take time to listen to people, and I hear them. And I think maybe with young younger generation that... Um, you know, there's so much going on that do they ever sit still and talk and be heard? You know, I think maybe that's something that uh, I would, if that's the, if that's what you're looking for. Yeah. That's the answer. I, I get the feeling that's, that's what you are. If, and you're, that's what your superpower is. Yeah. Well, according to, I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> Probably is empathy. I'd say empathy and listening and and um, and a desire to help people, but I believe in trade, not aid. And I learned that from Anita. Like she um, she travelled the world and say she would bring back. You know, she would go to the rainforest and ask the indigenous people of the rainforest, "What do you use for your hair? What do you use to wash your hair?" And it might have been uh, I don't know avocado or something, beans or nuts crushed up and they would have this wonderful gloss and then she would take that and so she would then start tell them to start a little business or she would give them the opportunity to start a business like gather up the nuts i'll buy these nuts and and start a little kind of um there's a name for it i can't think you know a small business and so i i loved that about her trade not aid and like it's like what you know give a man a fish but to give and he eats for a day and give a man a fishing rod and he'll eat for, for a more, <laughs> for longer, whatever the saying is. And um, so I think uh, another example of hers, which it 
this that kind of inspires me you know like to be able to create something that can maybe motivate somebody to start their own business or ha- and to listen to listen and and help in that kind of a way that that would be a desire of mine and one sometimes one somebody said to Anita oh you're so good at going around the world um and starting all these businesses in the rainforest and somewhere else and somewhere else um you've never done anything at home and she said that kind of hit hit her at home so i think she was looking for a new factory to make her soap and she found one in um scotland i don't know if it was glasgow but it was somewhere in scotland she found this big old building. She thought, okay, well, she took on board what this person had said. So she she decided she'd have all she put all her soap anyway making in this one place. And so she deliberately employed ladies. I think, well, you know, I suppose within PC rules, you can't be that sexist, but whatever. And um, and she, in the building, she had a crash. So the ladies that came to work could work and not have to drop the children off at a creche and then dash to get to work, stuck in traffic and then dash to get back. So they, there was a creche in the building. So they came to work, left the children there. They could go and see the children if they needed to. And I just thought, I love, I love that. That that kind of inspired me. And and I'd love, I think, you know, give back in those ways and and um, create. Like I wanted the snot blots to be made here and I still would like them to be made here. Um, and, and and just have that sort of life because I think you don't have to be so greedy that, um, you know, just create a better life. If you're going to create a product, create better lives, maybe for the people who help you make it. I just believe in a kind of a whole society, not just take, take, take. I hate greed and I, I like um, just, I suppose, when it's, when it's giving, you know. And uh, yeah, I, I think I've said before, I cry a lot. <laughs> I cry tears of joy. I'm sensitive. I think that's why a lot of my products are like, oh, I don't want to. <laughs> Somebody might say something bad about it, but not anymore. I got my big girl pencil. And <laughs> so, yeah, I would be at the St. Patrick's Day parade and I would I'd think, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. I wouldn't be blubbering, but a tear would kind of trickle out of my eye because I think that's just so nice how everybody's come together to create this and it's lovely and everybody's happy and, and watching it and, and it's just how everybody comes together and I, I just think you know I think my mum taught me that build bridges I think a lot of people a lot don't but there is an element of people that just want to destroy and they jump over the back of somebody to get to where they want to and they tear somebody down to be bigger and better than them I don't like that. I just think that there's enough for everybody. And I think, um, yeah, that kind of Anita, she created the, the soap factory. She, yeah, you know, when people just all work together to a common goal, a utopia. In fact, that's part of my story is about, it's a utopia, the story that I'm writing. And having, and there's another inspiration, Scion Mills in, um, it's kind of on the way to Oma. It's near the Ulster Folk Park. And, um, and one day I stopped there on the way back, and I suppose this is how I always end up chatting to people. I, I like I like to listen to people. I like their stories, and, um, and in fact, this is unusual for me to talk this much, Aaron. Normally, I don't say anything about myself, and and I could sit and somebody talks for an hour, and they don't know anything about me. It's not because I haven't that I've withheld it. I'm just I think I'm more of a listener. <laughs> I must be a good ear. So. Um, 
Cyan Mills was, and, and so I met this lady and she was English. And I said, oh, you're, you're not from here. And she said, no. And her grandfather had created this mill. I think it was a linen, linen mill. And she told me about this and he had this vision and this idea. And so he had the pe local people. And it was there was no religious divide, which there there was a bit in those days, and um, no religious divide at all. He wanted to create a utopia, which he did, and um, they had that tennis court. They had good working conditions, proper hours, good pay. Everybody was there for the common goal and the common good. And I just thought, oh, I like utopias. And I just think, yeah, I, I, I like that whole thing. I think, why can't people just be nice to each other and not jump on the back, as I say, jump on the backs of people or tear others down to get there first. I just greed. And, and so that's kind of me. <laughs> I also think as someone that's involved heavily in imagination, creativity, you have some understanding and empathetic level of, of a person. Maybe that's why you, you listen to them and what they speak as well. Yeah, yeah. I would like to think I have empathy, <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I think um, I, I definitely was taught a lot by my parents. I mean, I have them to thank really for instilling in me um, not only a strict bedtime and a strict regime, but regime is too strong a word, but um, they did instill in me it was the importance of like giving and yeah, to give and give of time and um, and to listen and be compassionate and to be honest and fair. And they, they did, they, I have to them, I have to thank them for so many things that they taught me through not lecturing, but through actually living it. My mum never, ever lectured me or told me off. She would just look at me, this withering look, and that was enough. That was just enough. I don't think she ever raised her voice that I can remember. She was incredible. She, I didn't even know. She never said she did stuff. I watched this film one time about, um, it was a subplot. It was a, I forget what the actual film was about. I was so interested in the subplot. But the subplot was about women being trafficked. And I remember, I was living in Southampton at the time, I went to visit her and... I said, oh my God, I saw this film about women being trafficked. It's terrible. And she just sat there and she went, oh yeah. And she said, we, she, when she first moved over to London, she made a very good friend of a, a, a nun, Sister Elizabeth. And they kind of, she got her her first teaching job in the East End of London, where she taught one of the Cray, the future to be Cray twins gang, not one of the twins, but one of the Cray twins gang. Uh, what was I saying? Oh, there I go off again, Aaron on a tangent. Um, sorry, I'm <laughs> dreading that this would happen because it happens to me all the time. I swear, oh yeah, my mum and instilling stuff into me. And she never, ever raised her voice. But, um, oh yeah, so that's right, the trafficked women. This is a bit of a flow conversation, isn't it, Aaron? It's just like chatting in the, in the living room. So, um, and so I said, oh my God, I saw this film. And, and I was kind of shocked. I didn't really know much about trafficking and, and such. And and she said, oh, yes. She said, Sister Elizabeth, Sister Elizabeth and myself have a home in East London. We're a safe house. And I was like, what? What? And she said, oh, yeah, we've had it for years. And, and it's a safe house for women, for, you know, who've been trafficked. And then she proceeded to tell me. She just did stuff. She never said she did it. And... Um, 
she she uh, then she was up at the House of Commons giving um, a, a, delivering a speech to them uh, about women being trafficked. And yeah, she's a not she's a hero of mine too. I have to say, my mom heroine. She's I mean, we were just talking about public figures, but I mean, the real heroine and hero are my mom and dad. And I have to say that really from my heart. And my dad, um, yeah, I'm just so proud of my mom. Everything that she achieved, and she just did it so quietly with no fanfare or fuss. She just did stuff. She never even said she did it. And I think that made a huge impression on me. You know, I think now I'm older and I can look back. And but obviously I was absorbing it growing up because I think you learn by example. And um, and my dad is such a humanitarian. He um, well, animalitarian and humanitarian. But he, when the girls were little and we went over to London, kind of you know doing things with them. Let's go to the zoo. And he said, I will happily escort you up there on the journey to help the girls on the trains and such. And um, but he said I'm not going into the zoo. He said because I don't believe I hate to see animals um, locked up like that. And that has he's passed that on to me as well. I I can't stand like I I watched the tiger tiger king that one that everybody was watching. It was fascinating documentary, but I, I couldn't even watch the tigers and the animals locked up. So he's passed that on to me. And also when the girls were little, you know, it's like oh there's a pet shop. Let's go in and look at the bunnies and stuff. And he would say, I'll wait outside. And he didn't make a big fuss of it. He said, no, go in with the girls. Go in because it's important for them to see all the different animals. But he could not go in. And and I think now I'm the same. You know, so we kind of, we learn, I think. I, I hate to see anybody trapped. Or I think that's why I was so free with my girls. <laughs> I'm not going to trap them into a bedtime. So, yeah, that's where that's come from. Oh, fantastic. And if people want to come and find you and hear and understand and figure out more where can they find you well they can email me on serendipity snotblot at aircom.net that's s-e-r-e-n-d-i-p-i-t-y s-n-o-t-b-l-o-t at e-i-r-c-o-m.net and I always have whenever I give my email to somebody you know like I don't know some company I'm phoning up can we have your email I'm going okay <laughs> seemed like a good idea at the time I'm going serendipity snot block they go, what? and thank you so much for coming to the show it's been a blast and pleasure oh thank you Aaron I did too and time's flown probably yeah it has oh thanks Aaron thank you for the opportunity Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.